This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Ultimately, we have animals in society because they turn food that we can't eat into food that we can. Now when I pick up a carrot, it's not just an ordinary carrot. Countrywide. 30,000 tonnes a week, something like that. Uh, That doesn't even cover the issue of broadband. Climb down off your ivory tower in Canberra. You've never set foot on a farm. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. G'day. Welcome to Countrywide. I'm David Barnock-Clement. Thanks for joining me. It's fantastic to have your company as we broadcast from Bundaberg today. Coming up on the program, carbon credits. Are buyers getting what they pay for? The man who used to head the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee thinks not. An environmental market without integrity is not an environmental market, it's a rort. And I feel that Australia's carbon market is just that. It's degenerated to become a rort. And why having more flies buzzing around on the farm might actually be a good thing. But, you know, most orchards we find six to ten different varieties of flies quite easily. You know, especially the little micro flies, they're one of my favourites. Just because they really get in around the little flower. But first, you may have heard about lumpy skin disease, which has been detected right on Australia's doorstep in Indonesia. It affects cattle and buffalo, is carried by biting insects and causes skin lesions, fever and loss of appetite, often resulting in that animal's death. Dr Ross Ainsworth is a vet who has worked in northern Australia's cattle industry for around 40 years and he is currently in Indonesia. He told Matt Brand the outbreak of lumpy skin disease is the most serious threat to the Australian cattle herd in decades. It is transmitted by biting insects. So... The biosecurity measures that have been so effective for many other diseases for generations uh, just aren't able to to protect us. We know that the viruses come down on insects, other viruses, blue tongue and uh, all sorts of other viruses come down on the monsoon. So just the fact that it's uh, insect transmitted changes the whole epidemiology of it and just makes it so much more difficult to deal with. And can we talk about the seriousness here on what would happen if this virus was detected in northern Australia? What would be the ramifications? Firstly, we're very concerned. You know, we're a major exporting nation. Enormous amount of uh, income is earned from exporting our excess production. So that would be immediately at risk. That risk depends on the reaction of other countries. But uh, you could be fairly confident that some of our importing customers would at least hold us up temporarily if not for a longer period. The second and probably more important is the threat to the production of our herd and the welfare of our herd. So if this disease got into our herds and affected the calves, if you've seen the photographs, uh, Mm. there's a very severe uh, impacts on all the animals uh, but calves as well. And those calves left without care during the wet season would be in severe danger of dying. So the fact that our cattle aren't able to be individually cared for, like most other places, I think would put our mortality rates, particularly in calves, a great deal higher than elsewhere in the world. You're in Indonesia. Tell us about what you are hearing and seeing when it comes to the outbreak over there. Well, not a lot at this stage. It's certainly getting everyone's attention and the government is focused on it. 
They are in the process of bringing in a vaccine. I'm not quite sure from where. There are quite a few vaccines available around the world. The figure I heard was that 250-odd animals have been identified in the initial area, but that was a few days ago, so it may well have expanded from there. But they're certainly very concerned, and rightly so. Their animals here are even more valuable than to their owners, but there isn't much you can do against insect uh, transmission. What's your take on the Australian government's response so far to this threat? Well, up until this morning, I wasn't that impressed, but uh, I've just seen a uh, press release from uh, the Minister of Agriculture and they've allocated quite a lot of funding towards it and, and other exotic diseases. But it appears that they have the message and they are seriously doing something about it. We sort of don't know exactly how to approach it at this stage. Potentially, we need a vaccine, but the vaccines that are available at the moment, they're all live vaccines. So as soon as you import a live vaccine, the live virus is then in your country. You've got it. And there's probably nothing you can do about it after that. Mm. So I don't see the existing vaccines as ideal. And I think it would be appropriate to look for alternative, you know, create new vaccines. We've probably got time to do that. How practical would a vaccine be for the North's vast cattle industry? Well, yeah, very limited. So two things. Firstly, in the conventional pastoral industry, certainly coming from the BTEC days, I can assure you that 100% musters are just not the case. So you're always going to be leaving animals out there that won't be vaccinated, even if you keep doing it over a few years. So that's going to leave gaps in the system where virus will continue to circulate within the unvaccinated population. But more important is the large uh, feral herds out there, particularly feral buffalo. And we're only just sort of starting to be able to utilise them as a good resource. And now that herd's under threat. We also have a large... And, and what you're understanding there, if all of a sudden pictures emerge out of central Arnhem of buffalo with lumpy skin disease, would that automatically trigger issues for the live export trade of, of cattle? Oh, without, without question, the, yeah. the fact that it, it was in a feral herd and, uh, rather than the uh, domesticated herd is not relevant. The disease would be in Australia and, and all uh, export protocols would be activated accordingly. We'd be sitting there around a table thinking, well, do we go out and shoot them all or do we try some other approach, ring, vaccinate? You know, it's a really shocking option uh, list. Foot and mouth disease has always been the uh, the most frightening one that we've been concerned about, rightly so. But it has the potential to be eradicated because the vaccines are quite good and transmission can be halted using biosecurity measures. Whereas with an insect transmitted virus, there isn't anything you can do. That's yeah. the reason that I think it's more serious in the big picture, the longer term, than foot and mouth. Indonesian-based vet Dr Ross Ainsworth. The federal government has announced an extra $61 million to boost biosecurity in the north, which includes money for lumpy skin disease. We turn to carbon credits now, which are in demand as more businesses try to offset their emissions. And Australian credits have enjoyed a strong reputation for their integrity, but the former watchdog for these schemes thinks it's undeserved. He's breaking ranks with explosive claims about the key emissions reduction schemes. Stephen Long reports. An environmental market without integrity is not an environmental market, it's a rort. 
and I feel that the Australia's carbon market is just that. It's degenerated to become a rort. These credits don't really mean anything. ANU Professor Andrew McIntosh is an expert on environmental law and emissions reduction. So it's going to be an ongoing part of Australia's climate policy for... He was appointed by the coalition government to the Bushfires Royal Commission panel, the Climate Change Authority, and for more than six years, he headed the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee, the integrity body for Australia's carbon offset schemes. This man has been a go-to guy for the coalition. You've appointed him to various roles. He served for the coalition. You can't just dismiss his concerns. Well, as I say, I think the facts are very clear. When you have people who are prepared to pay 10 times more for credits in Australia, when you see, and I hear regularly around the world, uh, people looking uh, at ACUs, the the credits that are created under the Emissions Reduction Fund, Uh, and the regard with which they are held, I have great confidence in the strength of this program. I'm a big believer in these schemes and the ability to use offsets to help cut emissions and to help lower the cost of doing so. But what we've seen is a real real difficulty, a, a real inability to operate schemes like this with high integrity. Three schemes make up 75% of the carbon credits issued to offset Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. A native forest regeneration program known as human-induced regeneration avoided deforestation, which pays landholders for not clearing trees they have permits to clear, and landfill gas, which pays waste dump operators to limit emissions of methane, a potent greenhouse gas. It appears from the analysis we've done and the evidence we have seen that somewhere in the order of 70 to 80% of the credits that are being issued are markedly low in integrity. So basically payments are being made to people to not chop down forests that were never going to be chopped down, to, to grow forests that are already there, to grow forests in places that will never sustain permanent forests. When you think forest... The dusty outback might not be the first place that springs to mind, but this is where most of the projects are located. As time's gone by, we've seen that the projects have been in the wrong places. More and more we saw projects going into the arid zone. They're not landscapes that hold a lot of forests and trees. Professor Don Butler is an expert on what drives vegetation growth in these regions. Under these schemes, People get paid to change how they manage the land by limiting livestock and keeping feral animals out. The theory is, this is what causes the native forest to regrow. Don Butler doesn't buy it. Ultimately, it's rainfall that drives tree cover change in arid zones. The forest cover may arise in a really wet year, but even if you're that lucky, it's going to go away again in the next drought. There won't be a permanent change. What does that mean for reducing carbon emissions? It means you've done effectively nothing. We've done a full statistical study of that, which did show that the HAR projects are significantly increasing the regrowth, independently of climatic factors and rainfall. When the rules were first developed, most experts assumed these carbon projects would only be on land that had been previously cleared. The sensible place to put carbon projects is in areas where forests have been cleared. So you've then got a big opportunity to restore the forest and regrow the carbon in the landscape. But the Clean Energy Regulator is approving carbon projects on land that's never been cleared and in areas that already contain a lot of vegetation. 
what's happening is the regulator is allowing proponents to include areas that already contain mature trees all over them. That means landholders are being paid as if they're growing trees in an empty paddock where new trees grow fast and store a lot of carbon. The regulator is misapplying the rules and as a consequence these projects are being grossly overcredited or overpaid. Scientists from the CSIRO share these concerns. 7.30 has obtained emails and a report from the scientific agency's leading experts in this field. When asked whether the clean energy regulator's approach was right, their response was blunt. They said the answer was no. The CSIRO scientists were unable to comment at this stage, but are preparing a further report slated for public release. You now have the CSIRO telling the clean energy regulator the approach it's taking is wrong and will lead to overcrediting. Were you aware of that? Look, at the end of the day, Were you the, aware advice, of that? The, the advice the clean energy regulator gives, the advice ERAC gives, is based on a broad range of sources. That's as it should be. Um, and they have been enormously successful. Look at the outcomes. 100 million tonnes of abatement delivered, over 200 million contracted, uh, 17 million in the last year alone, uh, uh, well-regarded credits that are well-priced in the market, significantly higher than credits in other countries. These are the outcomes that matter. So south of Alice Springs, Andrew McIntosh was replaced as head of the integrity body vetting the carbon programs by David Byers, a former mining and gas industry lobbyist. We don't agree with some of the advice coming from a couple of CSIRO scientists, but we've thoroughly in investigated. We have thoroughly investigated that. We have. There's been no lack of endeavour in trying to get to the bottom of that issue, and we found no evidence. He doesn't share his predecessor's concerns. I understand my predecessor has made some of those claims. We've investigated this thoroughly. We've done that very, very carefully. And we have come to a view, as I've described, that there is, that the uh, abatement is additional to what would otherwise have taken place, that there is compliance with the method and all of its requirements, and that there is no evidence of overcrediting. David Byers, Chair of the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee for the Government's Emissions Reduction Fund. You also heard from Professor Don Butler, Energy Minister Angus Taylor and Professor Andrew McIntosh in that report by Stephen Long. You're going to hear now about weed control, an important task for anyone growing food. One method uses pre-emergent herbicides. They work by forming a layer of chemicals in the soil that a germinating weed then has to grow through. One such herbicide is Overwatch, a new and controversial product. While many farmers say it's extremely effective in controlling weeds such as ryegrass, others say it damages their crops, causes yield losses, and is still active in the soil close to 12 months later. Some of those farmers are pursuing a class action against manufacturer FMC. Matt Whitney, our consultant with Dodge and Medlin in Swan Hill, says while Overwatch is still active in some soils, it shouldn't be a concern. Yeah, look, we're still seeing some bleaching and yellowing in some paddocks where Overwatch was used last season. It's mainly showing up in barley crops, and we're just seeing the, the rains activating over summer, some of that residual Overwatch herbicide that, that, that's still in the soil. Is that surprising that we're probably approaching 12 months on and that, that chemical could still be active? Yeah, it's a funny one. This particular chemical, Bixlazone, is very, very active at minute rates. 
Now, a lot of the chemicals don't show many symptoms at such low rates, but this one does. It's what's called a plant bleacher. So it inhibits the plant from photosynthesizing and, and creating light to energy. So even tiny little traces of this stuff in the ground can make sensitive crops just go that bit of a yellow or bleachy colour. Okay, that's the, despite, I think it's advertised with up to 12 weeks residual control. Yeah, it is. That, that's the weed control, effective weed control. So that's the kill weeds such, such as ryegrass, which it works very well on. But the actual residual goes beyond that, and you need you need breakdown of the herbicide through microbial action primarily to degrade it, but often this takes time. You need moist conditions, you need warm conditions, and that chemical is just going to stay in the soil until it's completely broken down. And even like minute traces over summer, even come autumn, you know, it's, it's going to show up in some sensitive crops. It doesn't mean it's going to necessarily harm anything, but it just looks quite visual. Okay, so where you're seeing it active at the moment, is it just causing bleaching or is it killing those, those weeds or, or that self-sown barley? No, it's more like just a bit of a slight discoloration in the barley. The rains have just flushed a bit of that chemical through the root system and it's got a bit of temporary bleaching. These are self-sowns anyway, so they're not really any benefit to anyone. It has actually worked on some of the summer weeds, so it's suppressed a few, slowed them down, so they haven't actually got to great size. So it has given some benefits to summer weed control, as long as you understand that the, the sensitivity for the crops coming in the, in the next year. Okay, Matt, so in the next uh, few weeks, I suppose, when people do start sowing is this something to be concerned about or, or conscious of or, or do you think it won't be an issue yeah i think lupins are a crop that's very high sensitivity so if you used overwatch last year for example in a barley crop and you were sowing lupins here this year you'd probably be a bit wary of the plant back especially on sandy soil and you, you would expect some bleaching in, in those situations i think it's very important to look at the label plant backs to look at not only the length of time you need, but also the moisture requirement that you need to break certain herbicides down. So barley crops may show some symptoms if Overwatch was used in canola last year. And, and I'd expect that to be very, very, very mild temporary bleaching, which the, which the crop would grow out of, because the rates there would be, be very low. Just reflecting back, uh, we've spoken at ABC Rural about all sorts of different experiences last season with Overwatch. Some people thought it was great, uh, controlled their ryegrass exceptionally well and didn't harm their crops. Other people have sworn they'll never use it again. What were your experiences with your clients? Yeah, it was mixed. Um, I think everyone did a lot of learning last year. It was a new chemical. I think a lot of the damage came from a lot of farmers did so dry into in soils and some of these soils were very quite hard and, and some of the bars struggle to penetrate and get the seeding depths required. And Overwatch is one of those chemicals that need good physical separation from the seed. So you really want to be sowing three centimetres or more and making sure that you've got that separation. The other one that caused a bit of damage, I think, was primarily due to the solubility of the chemical. So that's the ability of the chemical to move with moisture. So farmers sow and dry, then it rained after and it washed some of that chemical back in the row and that gave some bleaching. So there was multiple factors of why... There were some damage last year, but overall, the weed control, generally speaking, was very, very good. Uh, and it's a, it's a unique mode of action too. So this is a new group, a group Q, uh, and it's vital to our system to rotate the different modes of action groups to um, keep the, the weeds guessing. Matt Whitney from Dodgeon Medlin in Swan Hill, speaking with Angus Verley. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. You are listening to Countrywide with me, David Barnock clement If you're into fashion, you may have noticed more and more clothes are now being made out of hemp. 
The fibre can be used in sustainable textiles, building materials and even paper. But in Australia, our hemp industry still grows the plant almost exclusively for its seed. That's primarily because there's no large-scale facilities in the country to process the product. But as Dr Stuart Gordon from the CSIRO explains, pre-existing cotton mills may provide a solution. It's still early stages, I have to say, in terms of you know the hemp materials that we can get from the crops. I specifically look at uh, hemp fibre and, and hemp biomass, if you like. You know, it's a quick-growing crop. It produces a lot of biomass very quickly. You know, within 90 days, you get quite a lot of biomass. But then there, there are questions about how to extract that biomass for the next stages, you know, those post-harvest stages. What are the big challenges at the moment that you're facing in terms of using the fibre? Well, really just having processing plant that is of scale and then having the crop to service it. So if you looked at the cotton industry as a, as a sort of a model to follow, perhaps, you know, the cotton industry has over 40 gins in Australia. You know, these are processing plants to take the fibre from the seed and all those, those plants are within sort of three hours of the crop. Now we don't have any of that infrastructure at the moment for hemp. But you've been doing some experiments recently with actually passing it through a cotton gin. How'd that go? Yeah, surprisingly well, actually. I mean, uh, we've had a lot of expertise uh, in cotton ginning at CSIRO and with the Australian Cotton Ginners Association, so we're we're quite familiar with that process. We did put some uh, various straws. We took a semi-trailer of straw up to the Carroll Cotton Gin up just northwest of Tamworth. The gin owner there very gratefully uh, gave us a week there and we did all sorts of different sorts of straw, straw that hadn't been billeted, straw that had been retted and we came out with some, some interesting results and so we're, we're going back there as I say in, in another couple of weeks just to have another look and to check off some of the machinery and see what quality. So we, what we did note from those trials was that we got a fibre that came close to the fibre that we got out of the Alberta Inertec factory. So we were quite heartened by that. It needs a lot more work. Uh, it may need some gutting for those gins, you know, some new machines, but yeah, it was very interesting. Well, it's quite a different fibre, obviously, cotton, when you compare a cotton bud to a hemp plant. Um, yes. what, what challenges were associated with feeding it through that machinery? Uh, yeah, so the length of the, length of the fibre, so that the fibre in hemp is, comes from the sheath of the stem of the plant. It's essentially a composite fibre. So. If you imagine uh, a surfboard, a surfboard surrounding and, and providing reinforcement to the, the stem of the plant, uh, and then you need to open up the sheath into its fibre form, essentially. So the fibre that comes out is much coarser than the cotton, so I think the fibre we're getting is coming out at about 30 microns. Cotton comes out at an average of about 14 microns. Still a lot more work to do in terms of the fibre processing. You mentioned that it was producing some similar results to the dedicated facility in Canada. Is the gin a, a stand-in that can work in the meantime here? It could, with some adapt- adaptations and a little bit of work on the ground. I mean, essentially, we were sort of sweeping material into, the, into some of the overflow ducts in the gin just to recirculate them through some of those cleaning machines. Yeah, there, there was real potential there, I thought. Yeah. And then where, what, what were you then looking to... I, I know this was just an experiment, but what could you then theoretically use the fibres you produced out of it for? So you'd be looking at sort of industrial grade fibres, so they'd be looking at erosion control mats, maybe insulation bats. You could then subject them to some more degumming and then some more mechanical opening and you could get them down to a stage where you could combine them with cotton, but that's another, that's another step of processes beyond where we're at at the gin at the moment. Stuart Gordon from the CSIRO's Agriculture and Food Program speaking there with Luke Radford. Finally today, you get to hear from Australia's potentially least favourite insect. Flies are constant companions in the bush 
And there is perhaps nothing more annoying than a fly in your eye, up your nose, or in your mouth. But, as I found out, the little critters are actually important pollinators. It's safe to say that flies are not a popular insect. Just the sound of them makes you irritated. So why would you develop a product designed to increase the amount of flies on the farm? Now, Rose, I'm James Wilden. I'm uh, probably a farmer more than anything, um, but I am getting into the retail side of things, through, mainly through this fly grow, but yeah. James Wielden is the proud inventor of fly grow, which, unsurprisingly, grows the number of flies on your farm. Why? Well, it's all got to do with pollination. Yeah, I tried to get away from the meat fly and those big flies and my formula tried to concentrate more on the little flies. And there's a lot of flies, different types of flies, like hundreds of them, yeah. So, but, you know, most orchards we find, I know, six to ten different varieties of flies quite easily. You know, especially the little micro flies, they're one of my favourites, just because they really get in around the little flower. So tell me about this product. So it comes as a, as a powder and what, you mix it with water or...? Yeah, yeah. So it comes as a, a, what we call a fly meal, which is a dry powder. And you just add five litres of water to the bag and then you've got to let it ferment. And that's the trick to it. You've got to let it sit for 48 hours and let it ferment. And it bubbles up and smells very delicious to flies. Hello, this is Abby. Yeah, so flies are actually really important pollinators of many crops, both in Australia and globally, really. All right, well, I'm Abby Davis. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of New England in Armidale, and I study flies as pollinators. We generally have some evidence that flies are effective pollinators of brassica crops, avocado, carrot seed, and some berries, as I've found, and mango as well. I was going to say, are there some crops better suited to fly pollination than others, or is there just not enough data there to really know yet? Yeah, there's there's not really enough data, but we do think that there are some features of crops that the flies like better than other different crops. I think that it's more of a, a factor of the shape of the flower of the crop. They like to have a quick escape. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really related to the flower structure and also likely the nectar and pollen availability. Why are the flies there? I think when most people, especially in Australia, think of a fly, it's because it's crawling all over your face, <laughs> right? Not in yeah. a flower. What are they doing there? <laughs> So there's the flies have such a bad reputation, as we all know. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some that are very annoying, but the majority of them visit flowers and they actually need pollen and nectar to survive. Many of the adults, they visit flowers for nectar in order to be able to fly. They need it as an energy source. And they also collect a lot of pollen as a source of protein to start sexual maturation. Would increasing the number of flies in your orchard or in your paddock result in greater pollination for that crop? So I am definitely pro-increasing flies in an area, but truthfully, it's not that will not necessarily be the case. The main thing is we've got to take a step back and figure out if these flies are actually transferring pollen. And if they are transferring the pollen, if it's actually increasing the fruit or the seed set. Do you think we, um, we aren't as thankful for them as we should be? <laughs> Do you think we, we don't enjoy having flies around as much as we should? 
Yes, I I do think that that is true. There's so many that do great things. Of course, the ones that we interact with the most always do something terrible, right? But, but the ones that are just in the fields doing all of the pollination work, they're the, they're the really great ones. <laughs> Back in the paddock, James Wielden says he's aware flies aren't an agricultural silver bullet, but believes in a world where pollinating insects are on the decline... Flies could actually play an important role, not just at home, but overseas. Oh, I suppose the end goal would be um, even outside of Australia, because really Australia has a really good population of bees and a really healthy population of bees. There's countries out there that struggle to even keep a good healthy bee population. So I'm actually looking a bit further abroad this year. I'll see how the Australian market goes and they might fund me to actually go a bit further abroad. Creator of Fly Grow, James Wielden. And that's all we have time for today on Countrywide. You can listen back to all of the stories you heard on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. My name's David Barnett-Clement. Thank you so much for your company. Till next time. This is an ABC podcast.